You're listening to Something Real, connecting the reality of God to the realities of life. This week's something to talk about is a little bit different. It is just rich. Um, I was feeling a little bit under the weather uh, for recording, uh, and my son was earlier in the week, so we just we just couldn't connect. Um, so this is just going to be rich talking this week. Um, so. I guess my suggestion would be to use this as a bit of a reflection on the message from Sunday and uh, hopefully it it sparks some different ideas or or different questions that you may have had and uh, answers those. So I hope you guys enjoy. Okay, welcome to something to talk about, the solo edition. I'm not real sure how this is going to go flying without my partner here today. But uh, with Stacy out sick, uh, it's really thrown off our, our schedule. Her uh, son was sick on Tuesday, and now she's sick. And so uh, we needed to get something out content-wise. So that's why we're doing it on Friday instead of Tuesday. And uh, <clears throat> I apologize in advance for the fact that you have to listen to me by myself instead of uh, listening to, uh, to Stacy as we're going through this. So uh, again, the, the dialogue is better than the monologue, but uh, we'll do our best. Anyhow, uh, we are looking at uh, our watch out sermon from Sunday. Uh, this is from Luke chapter 21. And as we are uh, dealing with this, Jesus is talking about signs of the end of the age. Our core reality from Sunday was that the king is coming, be watchful, not worried. Again, the king is coming, be watchful, not worried. So as Jesus was talking to his disciples, we just come out of um, a section, and really this is a continuation of it, where he's drawing a contrast between um, between perception and reality and uh, dealing with things like, uh, like paying taxes to Caesar, uh, resurrection and marriage, uh, as far as uh, what marriage will be like at the resurrection as the Sadducees tried to trap him. He talked about his own identity, um, what they thought about Messiah versus the reality of Messiah. And then uh, as they saw the widow putting her offering in at the temple, it seemed to be a small amount. Uh, it, it was indeed in an objective way a small amount. And yet Jesus was saying she gave more than everybody else because she they gave out of their wealth, out of their abundance. She gave out of her poverty. So that contrast between perception and reality still carries over into the rest of this message um, immediately following that in verse 5 of Luke chapter 21. Uh, we read, some of his disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. But Jesus said, as for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. Again, we see this contrast between what they see and what God sees, what the reality is. That leads into the rest of this, um, this talk about what is yet to come and the signs of the end. So verse 7, teacher, they asked, when will these things happen and what will be the sign that they're about to take place? He replied, watch out that you are not deceived. And that's going to be kind of a theme as we go through here, right? So don't be led astray. Don't be sucked into your own perception, but see reality. For many will come in my name claiming, I am he, the time is near. Don't follow them. When you hear of wars and revolutions, don't be frightened. These things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. 
Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. We see this all the time, don't we? There will be great earthquakes, famines, and pestilences in various various places, and fearful events and great signs from heaven. Boy, you know, as we look at the news, that happens all the time. Every time there's a tragedy, every time there's a war, especially in the Middle East, every time there's a another hurricane or earthquake or, or whatever, um, we all get caught up in this, oh, it's signs of the end, or the other end of it where we don't pay attention to anything. We just were foolish and we move along and, and ignore the fact that there is an end coming and there is an indication. You know, as we talk about climate change so often in the news, and everybody gets all bent out of shape depending on their po- political perspective, uh, depending on what their particular uh, view of the science seems to show, what we can recognize as Christians is that there is a decay, there is an escalation of the natural things that uh, that the Lord, through the inspired word, tells us is birth pains, that, that we're going to see these, uh, these labor pains come about that are really the escalation of all sorts of things that started back in Genesis when the curse of sin fell upon all creation. When that happened, it began a process that will eventually culminate in the end of things as we know them. Uh, But that Jesus is saying here, that's not in itself the end. The end won't come right away. Recognize these things have to take place. Then he goes on to tell his his disciples there, those who are are in the crowd following him, those who are nearest to him, and anybody who happens to be around while he's speaking to his followers, any it's it's not in private, it's out in the open. Verse 12 says, But before all this, they will lay hands on you. That's not the the religious or spiritual uh, ritual of laying hands. It's talking about taking hold of them. They'll lay hands on you and persecute you. They will deliver you to synagogues and prisons, and you'll be brought before kings and governors, and all on account of my name. So he's speaking specifically about the persecution that comes from being a Christ follower. That is not something that necessarily we as Americans in in our society have seen a lot of. We see some persecution. It's small by comparison. He's talking about actually being brought up on charges and uh, having to face uh, face courts and stand before Congress and things like that. Uh, That's pretty rare in our experience currently, but this is not in any way a surprise or an abnormality in the Christian life. But notice in verse 13, he gives the purpose of this. These things are going to happen. The persecution is going to happen, but there's a result that comes from it. This will result in your being witnesses to them. So all these accusers, all these judges that you stand before, get to hear the testimony of Christ because of your persecution. Verse 14, but make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves. For I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. You'll be betrayed even by parents, brothers, relatives, and friends, and they'll put some of you to death. All men will hate you because of me, but not a hair of your head will, be, will perish. Not a hair of your head will perish. Wait a minute. How is that going to happen if we're going to stand trial, we're going to be persecuted, and some of us will even be put to death? If that's going to happen, how do we get put to death and not have a hair of our head perish? That's kind of an unusual uh, way of saying things. 
And then he goes on in verse 19 to say, by standing firm, you will gain life. So in the process of this persecution and suffering and even physical death, we can't perish if we are in Christ. Back in John 11, or forward, I guess, if we're going to the right in the book, in, in John chapter 11, he says at the resurrection of Lazarus, I'm the resurrection and the life. If you believe in me, even if you die physically, yet you will live. So not a hair of our head can perish because God holds it. God holds every part of our lives. Whatever bad thing we face, whether it's this kind of persecution or anything else in our fallen world, with all of these things happening, the reality is still that God is in control. He knows the plans that he has for us, just as he did with Israel. Whenever Israel faced hardship, every part of that was for God's glory and their ultimate good. So when they wandered away from God, God allowed bad things to bring them back. He disciplined his own. When they abandoned him, he broke them up, put them in, in exile, so that eventually through this, his holiness, his purity could be shown and his people could be won back. And he goes to great lengths to explain that in the Old Testament prophets. The same thing is true for us today. We're going to face hard things. We're going to go through difficulties. But the fact of the matter is, we never at any point are out of his hand. When we are in Christ, not one thing can ultimately touch us. Yes, we're going to suffer. Yes, we're going to go through hardships. Some of us might even be put to death for our faith. In that sense, in a temporal sense, yes, all of these things can touch us. But Paul says that these things are essentially light, momentary afflictions. And they're not worth comparing to the glory that's coming. So when he says, not a hair of your head will, will perish, there's a big picture issue that we're looking at. By standing firm, no matter what goes on, by standing firm in the word of God, you'll gain life. He goes on in verse 20, when you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you'll know that its desolation is near. Then those who are in, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those in the city get out. Let those in the country not enter the city. For this is the time of punishment and fulfillment of all that has been written. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. There will be great distress in the land and wrath against this people. They will fall by the sword and will be taken as prisoners to all the nations. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Now, this clearly is not a message to America, to, to people in Three Oaks, Michigan, or, or at Real Life Community Church, or wherever you happen to be. This is a message to those in and around Jerusalem. That's who he's speaking to. So we need to remember that every time we're reading the scripture, the author is not writing to us. It's being written to a specific audience about a specific setting, a specific context, and we need to bear that in mind if we're going to get from it what we need to get from it. Now, I'll come back to this in, in a few minutes here, but there is some discussion about whether this is speaking about uh, those folks that are standing there and literally about Jerusalem, or if this is a, a, a longer forward end times prophecy, I would suggest that this is um, an example of what some would call the law of double fulfillment or, or double reference, that there's a, a short-term, a near fulfillment of the prophecy, and then also a longer, a far fulfillment of the prophecy, where we see uh, an example within their lifetimes of the same 
picture, but not in its fullness. It's, a, it's really a partial fulfillment. And then it comes in its fuller sense uh, later on. We'll come back to that in, in a few minutes. He continues and says, There will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars. On the earth, nations will be uh, in anguish and perplexity. I love to say perplexity. At the roaring and tossing of the sea. So there's, a, there's an upheaval in the natural world, in the natural realm. Um, we're going to see natural disasters and all sorts of things, uh, cosmological signs, and people will freak out about it. Kind of like now. Men will faint from terror, apprehensive what... Uh, apprehensive of what is coming on the world for the heavenly bodies will be shaken at that time they will see the son of man coming in a cloud with power and great glory when these things begin to take place stand up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near a couple things we need to see we just saw this very specific reference to jerusalem jerusalem was destroyed in 18 in ad 70 Right, So uh, as the nations surround, we see this thing happen. The temple is thrown down, the, the buildings are destroyed, the people are destroyed, the Gentiles take over. Uh, we've kind of been in that phase really ever since uh, that the, the city of Jerusalem has been dominated, has been desolated, and even after being restored as a nation in 1948, it's not the same thing. It's not the same dynamic. It's not the theocratic kingdom uh, of Israel as we see in scriptural times. But what we do see is that there is a very specific fulfillment there, and yet he's speaking now also of a time when the Son of Man will come in a great cloud, in a cloud with power and great glory. So there are two different levels that this is looking at. That's why I say this seems to be an example of what we might call the law of double, uh, or the principle of double reference or the law of double fulfillment. Um, the other thing we want to note here is that he says, when these things begin to take place, he's just talked about fleeing to the mountains in uh, 20 to 24. But now in 28, he says, when these things take place, stand up, speaking to his followers, and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. There's a sense of excitement here. You should be encouraged. You should be empowered and excited by the reality that God is, is sending Jesus back to finish what was begun. This redemptive story that, that comes to a head at the cross when the forces of darkness are defeated and our sins are paid for will ultimately be in, in completion, utterly defeated, when the sun returns, the old order of things is destroyed, all wickedness is judged and eliminated, and the new order of things, the new heavens and new earth, are established. We see this in Daniel and we see it in, in Revelation spelled out a little bit more clearly. Uh, and so as we go through this, Jesus isn't giving a lot of detail in these signs. But what he is saying is, pay attention, watch there are signs. Know that this means that God is keeping his promises, that he's not done. And you, rather than being terrified, if you are in me, if you're in Christ, then you should not be freaking out and terrified. Instead, you should be encouraged. You should be rejoicing because it means that the redemption of those who are in Christ has drawn near. He told them this parable in verse 29. Look at the fig tree and all its, and all. It, all the trees, not just the fig tree, all the trees. When they sprout leaves, you can see for yourselves and know that summer is near. Now, that doesn't mean you, you're able to track specific days by it. You know, maybe you can, maybe you can't. I, I don't, 
I'm not a tree expert. But for most of us, we see springtime come. We see that the, the trees are beginning to bud and the, and the leaves are growing on them. And we know there's a change. There's a change in the seasons. Summer is near. Even so, he says in verse 31, when you see these things happen, you know that the kingdom of God is near. It's been a theme throughout Luke, the coming of the kingdom of God. I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Now, there's some debate here about what does he mean by this generation? And there are uh, several schools of thought, three main schools of thought as I was kind of working through this because this has been a, uh, one of those areas that I'm like, man, where, where, where's he going? What's Jesus saying here? Um, all the same questions that, that we see. So that's one of the big questions we, we get in this particular uh, prophecy as well as in others. What exactly is Jesus talking about? Is he saying that this group of people here is going to be present at the second coming? that these, these prophecies apply in the short term uh, to, for example, um, the destruction of Jerusalem in, in 70 AD? Or is this, uh, is this specifically for the end times? And so then it's not really talking about those who are physically present, but it's talking instead about those who are, um, those who are, going to be present at that time. There's a number of different takes. Uh, one is I'm looking at the Reformed or the Reformation Study Bible. Um, their perspective here is that uh, it's speaking about those who are standing there who are present at that time. All of the things that, that are referred to by Christ, except for his actual return, uh, are fulfilled in some sense by AD 70. We see all of these things taking place. Uh, and yet others... Uh, would say that this is a reference to Israel. This generation refers to Israel uh, as a nation that that uh, Israel will endure until the return of Christ. So that in some form, in some sense, um, the the promises that God has made to Israel will still be fulfilled. That they will be present. Uh, all the way until the the final return. And then others like uh, John MacArthur, for example, um, have they would see these things as not being fulfilled yet, uh, that, that the things that took place uh, in those early days are not uh, a fulfillment of this, but rather that this refers to the generation at the end uh, who will witness these things and see the completion of them. So that generation who begins to see it, okay, so when he's talking about this generation, he's not talking about this in the sense of those standing, but this in the sense of those I'm referring to who will witness these signs in the future. So uh, MacArthur's perspective, as, as well as many others, uh, is that this is not referring to that current generation or those immediate events, but is referring to the second coming. Uh, it seems to me that the the best take on this is is yes and both, that it, um, that it would apply to those who are standing there, uh, to all of those who are are witnessing this going on, that among this generation, that they would still be present, and a generation is often uh, a 40-year period in the Bible, we see that they some of them would still be present at the destruction of Jerusalem. They would witness that. And so in that sense, the things that are necessary for this prophecy to be fulfilled 
and for eventually Christ to return, whenever that might happen, all take place in an immediate sense there. Um, does that mean possibly also that that he's referring to Israel, that Israel will be present until the end? Uh, probably yes. Whether that's specifically what he's referring to, that seems to be in keeping with everything else that we see in Scripture, that regardless of the the state of the nation or the existence of the nation proper, that the people of Israel uh, will continue to be a people in some sense until that return. And then also, the uh, as MacArthur points out, the, the idea of that later generation seeing all these things and having it all happen at once, um, it seems to be a parallel to the cursing of the fig tree where it happens kind of immediately. Um, there's a a, a close together um, immediacy of those things happening uh, that also seems to fit. So again, if we take the principles that we see um, in, in so many other prophecies, you know, the prophecies of Daniel being immediately fulfilled and then still yet to come fulfilled, the prophecies of the, the desolation that, or the abomination that causes desolation standing in the temple, which I don't think is what, um, what he's referring to here in Luke, uh, but elsewhere in what seems to be a parallel, he seems to be talking about that. But we see that fulfilled in Antiochus the Fourth, um, you know, sacrificing to Zeus and even sacrificing a pig in the temple and desecrating it in this abomination that causes desolation, and, and it was referred to that that way or referred to that way. Um, and yet we see also the prophecies of the Antichrist in the future being the fulfillment of that abomination that causes desolation. So there's a, a double fulfillment, a double reference here, a near and a far sense. I think that seems to be the case with what we're dealing with here. Uh, I spent a little more time on that than what I really wanted to, but notice that as Jesus is talking about this, his focus is constantly on being ready, being watchful, not being frightened or freaked out. The reason to be afraid is if you are not aligned with the king. If you are the king's ally, then you should be excited when the king arrives. And when the king arrives in force, because you're on his side, you're in the winning army, so to speak. But if you're the king's enemy, then when the king arrives, you should be absolutely petrified. Because when the king comes with his victorious, triumphant army and you are his enemy, destruction is inevitable. So that's the, the big difference that, that we need to be watching here. And, and Jesus finishes this out in verse uh, 34 and following. Be careful or your hearts will be weighed down. And I think that's a really important thing for us to notice that when we get caught up in the things of the world, as he's about to list out here, it weighs us down. When we face depression and anxiety and struggles, it's because we're weighed down with the things of this world. Now, he's going to talk about some specific um, expending of our energy in ungodly ways. But just prior to this, in, in, and back in, in Luke 12 and in Luke 17, uh, in Matthew 6, we see so many references to not getting caught up in the things of this world, not worrying about the things of this world, not putting our trust in the things of this world. They weigh us down. So he says, be careful or your hearts will be weighed down with dissipation, drunkenness, and the anxieties of life. 
And that day will close on you unexpectedly like a trap. Why? Because you're not watching for it. Your priorities, your focus is not on Christ. Instead, your priorities and your focus are on the things of this world. And then all of a sudden, the things of this world come to a screeching halt and you're not ready. That tells us where our hearts are. For it will come, verse 35, for it will come upon all those who live on the face of the whole earth. No one escapes it. So that's more than a reference to Jerusalem in AD 70. That's a reference to a worldwide cataclysm, which is the culmination of things as the sun returns in glory. Be always on the watch and pray that you may escape, that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen and that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. Keeping watch and praying is our key to escaping what is going to happen and being able to stand before the Son of Man. No one can stand before the judge, the righteous and perfect judge, without having their sins atoned for in Christ. And no one has their sins atoned for in Christ who has not received Christ by faith. We are offered salvation, grace, unmerited favor, forgiveness and mercy that we cannot ever deserve or earn in the person of Jesus Christ who knew no sin yet became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God so that God could remain who he is being holy and just and yet also justify us without sacrificing his character without failing to be God that's the beauty of the gospel so in Christ, we, when we're working for him, when our priorities are aligned with his, when we are seeking the kingdom and functioning as ambassadors in this world, then we will be watchful and we pray. And because we are watching and praying and we are engaged with him in relationship, we're able to escape all that, that is coming. And we're able to stand before the Son of Man because he has already paid our penalty. That's a powerful reality for us to recognize. So let's not get caught up in praying that, that we can escape. Oh, Lord, please save me from this. Oh, Lord, please save me from this. Yes, pray that with every moment of your life that God would save you from the hell that you're going to and the hell that you're going through, that he would rescue you and pull you in to himself, that you would be in Christ. But once we are in him, that's a relationship that can never be undone. We didn't earn it. We can't unearn it. We didn't merit it. He gave it to us because that's who he is. God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And if that's the case, then we can be eternally comforted, encouraged, and and secure in the reality of this. So, Wrapping it up, uh, understand that the end, of the, the end of the age is near. Jesus is telling us that there are indicators of the inevitable. We need to be aware of the signs, reminding us that inevitably he is coming. There is nothing that's going to stop this from happening. We can do all that we want to change you know, the climate or whatever else we, we're going to do. We can work to create this perfect utopian government. It's still going to end. And it's going to end the way God says it's going to end. We need to recognize that and be watchful. Notice also that, that there is a worry among those who are not aligned with God. We can call it the worry of the wicked. That those who are not 
on the king's team should be terrified. They need to be watchful and they need to change. They need to repent because when he arrives, if we are on the opposite side of the king, judgment and destruction are also inevitable. We need to be aware of that. But in contrast, those who are ready are able to rejoice. The difference between rejoicing and regret is whose team you're on. Which side are you on? Will you be with him in Christ? Or will you be trying to do things your own, living as if you are the king? If that's the case, you're not going to be rejoicing. You're going to be filled with regret. So the right response that we should have to the reality of of Christ's return is not to be foolish, not to pretend that life is going to continue to go on like the the scoffers, the mockers in in 2 Peter you know, acting like, oh, nothing's ever changed. Everything goes on as it always has. That's foolishness. To pretend that the inevitability of Christ's return is anything but inevitable is foolish. To resist it, to try to change it is foolish. But also don't be deceived. Don't get sucked into thinking that every everything that happens is a sign of the end and, and get caught up in the doomsday prophecies and trying to predict you know, the, the day and the hour when he's going to come. God deliberately doesn't tell us that. That's his choice. So don't get caught up in those kinds of, of deceptions. At the same time, don't be afraid. Be, <laughs> be his. If we get to a place where, where we're constantly worried about whether Jesus is going to come back and what's going to happen, then we're, we're trapped in a legalistic religion that is not the gospel of grace. When we receive his love and we understand the nature of his love, the perfect love drives out fear. His love is perfect. The problem is we are so caught up in other things as if we can earn some sort of uh, pleasure from God rather than recognizing that he has chosen to love those who receive him. So if we receive him, he gives us the right to be his children. If we are his children, then we have no reason to fear because God protects and preserves us. It's the opposite of of the worry of the wicked. And lastly, we need to recognize also that we need to not be asleep. If we're going to respond rightly to this, we need to understand that God has a plan And he has given us a job to do. And while the master has gone away to receive the coronation as king and to one day return, we need to be working as his ambassadors on his behalf while he is away. And the faithful servant who is ready will have every reason to rejoice. But those who are unfaithful, who are not ready, who are asleep at the wheel and not watching, not participating in what God has given us to do, when the king returns, he will count that servant among the unbelievers. That's a picture we can't escape in scripture. And it's not very you know, very nice and comforting if we are stuck in a cultural religion. That's not what we're called to. We're called to a complete and utter surrender to the king. So if we have done that, and we are watchful, we're, we're keeping an eye out, watching the skies for the return of our glorious king with anticipation rather than dread, then that tells us something about who we are, that we belong to him. And with that, uh, we'll close this out. I hope that, uh, that you were able to endure this session without Stacy, but as we uh, 
as we look at this. If you have any any questions about this podcast, the sermon podcast, or anything else, feel free to send that to our email at uh, somethingreal at reallifeonline.org. Uh, you can leave a voicemail at the Anchor app for the podcast. Stacy would be very excited about that if we had a voicemail. Um, and and we can en- engage those questions in a later podcast as we go. Uh, so thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.